Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. This episode features a conversation I had with Martin Charlier last fall. We talk about designing for IoT, design's responsibility, and the importance of team dynamics. Enjoy the show. So I'm here today with Martin Charlier, a product and service designer, formerly of Ford. Is it Fjord? It's uh, Fjord. Fjord. And also contributor to Designing for Emerging Technologies due to release this month from O'Reilly and co-author of the forthcoming Designing Connected Products. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Thank you for having me. (laughs) I'd like to start with you just talking a little bit about what it is you do and how you found your way into designing for connected devices. Sure. So I work as an independent design consultant. I um, started my career, I guess, at Frog in Germany, working in industrial design, but then moved on to do digital design as well as design research and have since worked at various design firms doing very different things. So for example, I've worked at an art collective that was doing new media art installations. And then at Fjord, which is a service design consultancy, uh, where I also did EU research. So European Union funded research into Internet of Things and best practices for designing Internet of Things. So how I got into Internet of Things is an interesting question because I think, um, so I think for me, my degree that I did at Ravensbourne was in a kind of very progressive design course that looked at product interaction and service design as one course. Um, and so for us, it was pretty natural to think of products or services in a very open way. So whether they are connected or not connected didn't really matter too much because we're sort of, you know, it was sort of based on the understanding that the technology is there to build almost anything. So it's really about how do you design with that in mind. So I've always kind of looked at products and services that way that, you know, they might be connected or they might not be. And it's really almost like electricity, like you might have an electric product or you might have a non, you know, something that isn't powered. I think when I was working in industrial design, it became really clear for me how important that is. So, you know, specifically, I remember one project working on an oven, working on a built-in oven, and it was working on the industrial design of it. So the way it looked, but not the way it worked or the way you would operate it. And in this project, we specifically couldn't really change how you would interface, uh, interact with it. The user interface was already defined and we would, you know, our task was to define how it looked like. And for me, that was where it became, you know, that was when I was a very, very junior designer. Um, and, but it became clear to me that I don't really want to exclude any, any one area in, in uh, it feels really unnatural to design a, not a product, but only worry about what it looks like and let somebody else worry about how it how it's operated or vice versa i guess mm-hmm. uh, because it really seems to me that products in today's world especially need to be thought about you know from all of these angles um you know i think you can't really design a coffee maker anymore without thinking about the service that it might plug into or the systems that it connects to and so you sort of have to think about all of these things at the same time that's interesting that no, it totally makes sense. You come you come at it from such a unique perspective, um, because of the industrial design, because of the, your your background, your educational background, as well as your um, you know your professional background. And what I'm seeing is you know interaction designers are trying to figure out what this all you know the Internet of Things means. And you you have uh, a unique perspective on all of it. I mean, do you think that, first of all, do you work with people that come from a strict interaction design background? Um, no, I think I work with people from all sorts of backgrounds. 
Um, I mean, what I mean by that is, do you work with people that have just a um, only an interaction versus like somebody like yourself that can can look at it from an industrial as well as interaction? Um, both, but I think there is a, and I don't want, I'm not sure how to. <laughs> oh, I just say is, it. <laughs> there is a difference. I, I, well, I I think you often notice the difference. Like I think I think people from an industrial design background that have moved into digital tend to think about interaction design in a slightly different way. I think they tend to think more about the physical side of an interaction uh, or of or the, the kind of physical aspect and, and the, perhaps also the context around it. You know, I think it's sort of, hmm. you know, I'm not sure if this is a great thing to include, but it's like industrial designers would, that moved into digital would draw UX wireframes uh, and present them in the device frame and Pure digital designers would just present the wireframe without a device frame, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And this is a really silly little thing, and it probably isn't. You know, it's not. You can't generalize that. I, I sort of just made that up uh, as a, as a, you know, from observation. But it's for me, it shows the difference of thinking just screen versus thinking I'm holding a thing in my hand and I'm touching it, and there's other buttons on it as well. And I might be forced to hold it a certain way or with one hand, or I might be standing on a bus while I'm doing this. Okay. So I think there's a sort of slightly different mindset I sometimes notice. But I'm is that is so you're so to, to to make sure I'm clear on it, are you saying that industrial designers think more holistically when they're you know, I think. I mean, I know it's a generalization, so please don't think we're going to quote you all over the place on it. <laughs> I think industrial designers are trained. The training is much more about holistic thinking. Interesting. I would say. I think a lot of interaction designers, interaction designers, often and UX design, design specifically, it's often very task focused. Right? It's a. Mm -hmm. It's a profession that looks at how do I complete a transaction through a digital touchpoint or how do I you know how do I book a flight how do I check out on an online uh, e-commerce site so it's very task driven I think um, it's very it's very usability centered and I think I'd like to think that industrial designers have that as one of the slices but they also think about a lot of other things uh, so so for example by um, you know interaction designers don't really have to think about how something is how the, what they design is made. You know, they don't really have to talk that much to a developer and be told you can't do it that way or you can't do it this way because generally it's not that, you know, sort of anything is possible in software. Uh, and I think in industrial design, it just isn't. So you sort of juggle many more things at the same time, I think. Mm, that's a really good point. It's the, the limitations are, are stricter for sure and the physical. I mean, you know, if you talk to a, a developer who was working with a designer, they'd say, well, you can't do everything, but you, you can do far more in a digital space than you can when you're working on a physical yeah. product. Um, yeah, and I, think, and I think it's another great example, well, to, to take that even further. Mm -hmm. So I think that split that is in digital is quite, is almost uncommon. So, um, you know, if you were to sort of do an analogy between uh, the interaction designer, um, you might have a visual designer that looks at what the, what a UI looks like. Mm -hmm. And then you might have a developer that, that does it. And you could sort of, you know, translate that into industrial design is very tricky because the industrial designer would look at how the usability and how it's used, but at the same time would concern himself with 
how it looks, what it looks like, and, and the styling, the aesthetics, mm-hmm. but also at the same time think about manufacturing processes and uh, materials. And so he's almost all of these three roles uh, in one person. Interesting. Okay. So do you find um, that industrial designers, um, and I'm assuming, you know, industrial designers that were, were trained as strictly industrial designers, they're picking up interaction design, um, or at least enough knowledge of it. I mean, how are folks working together today if, to build product um, in this space? Is it is it teams of people? Is it, um, are you looking for like designers to become more T-shaped so that they have much more knowledge, maybe at a shallow level? Um, how, how do you see the products being created? I think, um, I think every field needs to know a little bit, just a basic kind of understanding of the other, of the other side. But I think that, you know, so the most, some of the, some of the most interesting projects I've seen, the team was sort of made up of, you know, somebody with an industrial design background, uh, somebody doing more, you know, maybe technology, uh, and somebody doing more interaction and user experience design. And so, the key, though, really, to the, some of the projects I've seen was really that they started work as one team together before splitting up into their respective domain areas mm. so that there is a, a sort of a joint vision. I think that's the most important thing is, is to come up with a joint vision. And I think that's where interaction design, for example, and industrial design need to kind of think of either sides a little bit. And what I mean is, you know, I'd like to think there's lots of interaction designers who also think about the product and think about the physical side. Mm-hmm. And, and equally, there's industrial designers who think about the, what the, what an interface might be or how you might interact with the product they're designing. Okay. Um, so I think there's sort of crossover a little bit already. And then I think it's just about working jointly. But then when it gets down to, you know, I guess the execution level, you know, an industrial designer is probably going to be much quicker in doing CAT modeling and, and doing a, a physical model and an interaction designer is going to be much more skilled at doing, um, a user experience specification document that outlines how the interaction works. I mean, that's the, that, that's yeah. the most successful models I've seen, I think. That makes an awful lot of sense. I mean, to come together for the shared vision and then go off, do your thing and then come back and, mm-hmm. and, and collaborate. I mean, I'm sure it's continuous collaboration, but people need to go get their work done. <laughs> um, the, so talk to me a little bit. You've talked a little bit about, um, you know, how designing for physical versus, uh, digital is different. Are, what other kinds of differences do you see given your unique, um, view of the world and being able to see through both lenses? So like I said, I think, I think industrial design is, is, well, designing a physical object is less, I want to say less task driven. You know, the, the usability, the task, aspect of it um is only one one facet of the whole experience so there's you know you have to think about the aesthetics uh, and much more the sort of emotional qualities of of the product and i think materials manufacturing processes as well and that sort of also relates to um an environmental responsibility for example so i think as an industrial design if you design a physical object you have to think about you know where that goes uh, when it's at the end of its life cycle and what kind of materials you use to make it and, and where those materials come from. You know, so the Fairphone project, for example, is interesting. They, hmm. one of the things they talk about is that they use, uh, conflict-free materials only. So it's not just about the material being renewable or a kind of sustainable material source, but it's actually also about like the social responsibility in how do these, you know, especially like precious metals, for example, where do they come from? Uh, and what are the labor conditions in wherever they come from? 
Right. Um, so there's, you know, you that's can interesting. That. Well, right. I, I envision this pile of um, wearable devices somewhere in a dump somewhere, you know, <laughs> years from now. <laughs> um, those are those are really great points. I hadn't thought of any of those. What do you think are probably the biggest challenges for for people new to this space, coming into this space, as I mentioned earlier, your co-author on this um, book with Claire and some others, Designing Connected Products, and that book covers a lot of territory, but where do you think, I, one question is, what do you think the biggest challenge is, but where to begin? Like, if you're new to this space, what, what advice do you give to people? That, you know, you're a designer, but you might, you probably haven't done anything with physical design. I think it's getting incredibly easy to... Um to sort of experiment in the space. And that's through, you know, for example, Little Bits is a great product platform or a great kind of toolkit to just build a connected product and prototype a, a, a physical product um, very quickly. Or Arduino is a great platform for it. And I think it's it's very accessible now. You can just pick up a book and do the, you know, the, the electronics equivalent of a Hello World, which is to blink, it, blink an LED on and off, right? Right, um, right. Uh, I think, you know, I mean, I, I, um, I go to meetup groups around Internet of Things. I, um, I think there's, you know, some great resources about how, how stuff is made. There's a great book called Making It. Um, mm -hmm. it talks about different manufacturing, uh, processes. Um, so I think that's the beginning. I think just trying to do. So experiment yourself, just like you with design or code, if you were trying to learn those things. Learn by doing. Yeah, I completely agree, yeah. Uh, mm. Learn by doing, and I think um, I think that will create an understanding of, of sort of what's, you know, at least a basic understanding of how electronics work and, and how, you know, how, how you might have to power something. And, uh, right. Um, or that it's generally, you know, it's just kind of learning these these basics of what does a circuit look like that blinks an LED. Hmm. And then I think the, you know, what we talk about in the book is, of course, well, some of the things we talk about in the book is the next level of that is when you look at issues like, um, if you have five different places that you can use to, five different objects that you use to control the same thing, essentially, like your heating, for example, you know, you run into all sorts of other challenges, like, um, I think that are, you know, harder to figure out, I guess, when you experiment, but, mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's a hard one. I think it's, you know, I, um, I think it's a, sp uh, the connected product space in general is a lot of people learning by doing. And, and I don't think anybody's figured, figured it out yet. Mm -hmm. like it's a lot of experimentation, it seems, which I mean is the way that any, you know, anything in its youth, I think progresses, right? A lot of people trying different things and sharing what they're doing and hopefully yeah. finding your way through. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You talk about, um, you talk about interaction models and in the book, and do you think that there will be one dominant way of interacting with devices moving forward? I mean, people talk about voice and gesture, or do you think it's going to continue to be a combination um, with maybe like something that seems to stick out, whether it be voice or something else? What what does that look like to you? I mean, I know I'm asking a bit of a crystal ball question, but um, I'm curious um, as to your opinion on it. I think what we see already, or what I see already, is that there is new kind of combinations of, of input and output types that are being put together to form interfaces. So, for example, um, I think a really good example for me is, is the Nest Protect, uh, because it sort of, you know, for example, it, it, it speaks to you, right? It, it uses voice, synthesized voice, uh, to give you information, like which room 
uh, is was smoked texting. And I think that's a really interesting one because it's sort of, it's not really a voice. I wouldn't class it as a voice interface because mm-hmm. I'm not interacting both ways through voice, right? So voice for me would be something like uh, Siri, where I'm speaking to it and it responds to me. So I think what, you know, what I'm sort of interested in seeing is, is products that come up with a certain combination of some kinds of inputs and some kind of outputs that happen to be appropriate and make sense for, for their particular products. And I think that's where it starts to feel natural, where you don't really think about whether Nespotech is a voice interface or, or, or another kind of interface, right? It just sort of makes sense that the device would try and give you more information through the medium of speech, because that's actually the best way for it to do that. Equally, at the same time, I think touchscreens, you know, are probably going to stick around for a very long time because they've, you know, they're such a commodity. They're such a, Everybody use, knows how to use a touchscreen now, right? Everybody, you know, like people kind of now go to screens that aren't touch screens and want to touch them because we sort of have this expectation now that you can touch a screen mm. and interact with the elements on it. So I don't expect them to go away, but I think I'd like to see uh, these new kind of combinations. You know, one of the, one of the projects I'm mentioning in the book is, you know, a former colleague of mine from Frog, uh, Jared Ficklin, who did a brilliant demo where of a sort of, they call it Room E, which is a sort of connected room. Um, uh, you know, they're exploring the idea of what's, what would room-sized computing look like? Uh, what if the computer was my house, effectively? But one of the things they're doing in the demo, which is, I think, brilliant, is this sort of idea of multimodal input. So in his demo, Jared is, uh, you know, pointing at a lamp and saying, turn this lamp on. And so... And it knows. And it knows which lamp you mean. And it's sort of able to, you know, the system in that case is able to make sense of kind of what do you mean by this lamp? Which lamp do you mean? And, 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 you know, why are you pointing at a lamp? <laughs> um, you know, it kind of puts them together, uh, and figures out, oh, right. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like it feels, it feels like, why am I even explaining this? Right. It, it's so obvious. Right. You know, I think that's just really interesting. Um, but I think it's also a long way, quite a, you know, a long way away, uh, to have that kind of stuff in, in practice. And, and I'm sure there's lots of things we have yet to, to experiment with in terms of how that you know, whether that actually catches on right i'm not you know i'm not sure uh because i think you know voice has i'm i'm not sure voice is catching on that much right it's you know it's it's, it's still a thing that people sort of aren't really comfortable talking to their phone in public i yeah i wonder if that will change i was just going to ask you do you think it's a technology thing or a, a human thing and you're saying it's a human thing it's it's sort of the creep factor, you know, of you're talking to this thing and it's talking back to you. And it's not a human, but it's trying to yeah, um, imitate a human. Yeah, I, I, no, no, definitely. It's definitely a sort of creep factor type thing. It's, um, you yeah. know, it's, it's, just, it's just bizarre when you see somebody talking to themselves. Uh, <laughs> um, it is. And, it is. Well, I think there's, you know, I think for certain cases, it makes complete sense. I mean, one of the things I love is, uh, is setting a timer with Siri because it's just so much quicker. You know, as soon as you go into like things that are, so things like setting an alarm or setting a, a, a clock time, a, an alarm time, you know, t- I think turns out like voice is actually much more efficient at saying, you know, wake me up at 2.74 is much quicker than saying, then kind of navigating dials and buttons in a in a UI in a touchscreen UI and you know overshooting with the minutes bit and mm. so again it comes down to like context of what you're trying to do 
I yeah, exactly. No. This the sort of idea of appropriate. What's appropriate for this for this thing you're trying to do? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, so you've talked a little bit about. Um, and this is my final question. You've talked a little bit about products that you think are interesting out there. Are there other ones that you've come across? I feel like each time I've, I've talked to you, you've alerted me to one, things I hadn't heard of before. And you mentioned, um, you know, people playing with little bits and, and um, Arduino, of course, but products or projects that people are experimenting with or, or developing that you think really are doing something special. Um, yeah. So one of my one of my absolute favorite products is um, it's the Amazon Dash. And that's really just because it's this idea that we, you know, I love the idea that I could use a grocery service um, without ever having to launch an app or go to a website. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not having to interact with a screen. You know, I know that it's not co- that not quite where they are yet, but um, I love this idea that we can sort of disband services, our interaction with services from from these dominant platforms that we have at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the Amazon Dash is a brilliant example for that. Uh, you know, I think what's also interesting about it is that for me, it's the best. It's like the best execution of the internet fridge, right? And so what I mean by that is that. I think uh, the you know there's obviously been this there's obviously this obsession or this misconception that with internet fridges, but I think the the thing about it is actually that I think the misconception is that we that a lot of people think the internet fridge has to be a fridge, right? If you think of it as just an idea, um, it doesn't have to be the fridge as a as a device. It could be uh, you know if you think of it as an idea, the Amazon Dash is actually a pretty good execution of an internet fridge service. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It's not about the fridge. It's about the service that you're providing. It's what is the user need. They don't really care about the fridge. They care exactly. about the food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that's why I like uh, the Amazon Dash. Another project I find, um, you know, incredibly interesting, even though there's very little about it, um, kind of public at the moment, is is um, Google's physical web project. Hmm. So, because it hits on something I've been thinking about for for a while as well, is this. The sort of idea of turning apps into something which is temporary. And this idea that, you know, maybe, you know, if I'm, when I'm sitting on a bus, what if there was, you know, that bus had an app that became available on my phone while I'm on the bus and it just disappears from my home screen when I step off the bus. Uh, and so while I'm on this, this bus, I can tap into information like where is it going? What is the next stop? What's the route look like? And, and the Google uh, physical web project is, start, you know, from what I've seen, is sort of in that realm. Uh, I've seen some there's some demos online around, you know, walking up to vending machine and the vending machine making available effectively an app on your device for just the moment that you're in the vicinity of the vending machine. I think that's really interesting because mm. it's sort of about understanding when do we need to actually surface um, an interface for a certain thing. If it's confined to space, you know, maybe it needs to be just the the bus stop that makes an app available to me that I don't really need when I'm not at that bus stop. That's magical. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. You know, given a talk the other day where that kind of forced me to do some more research and and I found some projects that I think were really interesting. So, you know, there's a company doing smart power tools. Yes, Tim, I think Tim was talking about this interesting power tool, but talk, talk a little bit about it. So... I think it's just sort of interesting to see that there's, you know, there's this company doing smart power tools that mean we don't make mistakes anymore. You, we're all perfect craftsmen. Um, there's an interesting, there's a product, um, I don't know if it might be a European product, but it's a sort of, 
universal kitchen appliance that does lots and lots of things at the same time. Um, and they've released a new product which is sort of internet connected and lets you download recipes and stuff like that. And so it's sort of the same idea. It's the sort of smart cooking device that turns us all into like Michelin star chefs. Um, <laughs> right. And then there is the old example of Adam Greenfield from that he, that Adam Greenfield talks about in everywhere with the, with just this elevator company, right? That created this new elevator system that is more efficient because it tells you which car to get into. And then, uh, it sort of gets you to your floor faster. Wow. The flip side of that is you never bump into anybody anymore that works on a different floor because the system wouldn't put you into the same car. Mm. And, and I think all of this is not, you know, this is all in the very beginning, but I think what I sometimes think is actually becoming really important for designers to think about is what, you know, where's this headed? Um, yeah. You know, is, you know, I like a piece of wonky wood that I cut myself. <laughs> it's yours. <laughs> um, it's mine, exactly. And, you know, I like the, I like the, a meal that I, where I didn't follow the recipe and it might not have worked out that well, but I still made it. You know, I still experimented with it. Yeah. So I think what just, you know, what I just think becomes, well, well, what I see increasingly as also something designers need to think about is what are the values behind some of this? You know, is it all about efficiency, productivity and, and, you know, getting you to work faster and getting you to, um, cut what, you know, cut your, do your carpentry at home, you do your wire at home without, without any, um, mistakes and any errors. You know, what about the more human values like, you know, the serendipity of bumping into somebody or the, the, the story that's behind a piece of wonky wood, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Um, right. Or a burnt meal. Of- You're right. And the stories behind the burnt meal and your guests and everything else. Yeah. And exactly. So I'm not saying that the future is, I'm not saying that I think there is a future that will, uh, you know, be this kind of cold hearted world. I'm just saying that I think kind of almost, Similar to the role that philosophers have in society, right? It's sort of like, I think designers need to sort of start to think in that way a little bit and sort of question, you know, wh- how, when we design this kind of connected and smart stuff that does things for us, is that really, you know, is that the world we want to build, I guess? Right. Um, right. You really need to think about your value system and what you want it to look like in the world. Agreed. And I think it's, if anything, that's the way an industrial designer would think about materials and where they come from and, and landfill. And, you know, the legacy that he might leave to the world with, with a product he makes. I think that's almost the same thing, right? With, with, uh, mm-hmm. with digital designers or interaction designers. So you, you need to start to think about how do you change people's behaviors? You know, do you, you know, I think the elevator thing is a great example because it sort of makes, turns the people in that building into worker drones that are slaves to the, you know, the physical system they inhabit because it just tells him, tells, tells every worker drone like, Oh, use this elevator to go to work quicker and, you know, have that much coffee today because that's your perfect, that's your perfect biological mm-hmm. amount of caffeine to, to get the most work done. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, I think there's a new responsibility for designers. I think is to start to think about that stuff too, these implications of it. Um, mm-hmm. No, I can see that. I mean, I, I just finished reading the filter bubble. Have you read that book where it's, you know, it's sort of the same sort of creepy reality or pseudo reality that people are being served up their own news and it's, no one's actually connecting because they're all getting what they, it's sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy of what you might have tapped on once. Now somebody believes that this is important to you and so you're only going to get X. Exactly. There is a, um, <clears throat> there's a TED talk by a guy called Kevin Slavin that really influenced me in that way. Um, where he talks about, I think it's called how algorithms 
rule the world or something like that. Um, and he talks about, <clears throat> you know, how, how some of these, uh, some of these systems shape the world around us without us even really realizing or without most people really realizing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the way, the way a, I don't know, self-driving car is going to define the, pick the route that it will take you is, is suddenly something that you don't decide no longer, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's just being decided for you based on, and the question really becomes based on what values. Right. Right. So as simple, as simple as that, I think it's sort of based on, is that based on the idea of getting you from A to B the quickest or, mm-hmm. or based on the idea of having, I don't know, the most scenic route. So I think that will become more and more important as we build this, this kind of connected, you know, and, and smart home applications where, you know, things happen magically around us. <laughs> Right. Sometimes for, right. Sometimes they work well and other times not. <laughs> As I'm finding, I just, uh, installed the nest and I was like, why is it 78 degrees in the house? <laughs> it feels like a sauna. Um, and I think it was just like I messed up in terms of the installation. So like it would just like literally jack the heat up to, you know, summertime weather in the middle of the day. And I'd look on my phone and I'd be out of the house and I'd think, oh my gosh. <laughs> Uh, the dogs are probably sweltering in there. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, but it's learning all of these things and yeah, it is, it's, it's exciting, but it's also, it's a lot of responsibility for everybody. I don't think it should just be on designers either. Oh yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's something that just needs to become part of the conversation mm-hmm. and and also part of the conversation for the people that aren't involved in designing this kind of stuff, I guess. Right. Because it's very easy to understand for consumers that one material might be better for the environment than another one, taking the industrial design example. But I think it's a lot harder to convey things that are so intricate and so subtle and so complex, like why a certain elevator never actually makes you meet, you know, I don't know, your colleague who works 10 floors below you in the right. same building, but you weirdly never see each other in the elevator, right? It never happens. Mm-hmm. And I think that's... Yeah. It's, you know, it's it's something else to get your head around, I guess, yep. as, a, as a consumer, is to sort of think about, well, how how many things have been going on in the background here? Well, you know, the filter bubble is actually a, a, a much easier, much more digestible example, I think, that, you know, is starting to question that what the Google results page serves you up. I think, you know, the, the great example is the Egypt search result, right? That, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the filter bubble is actually a really good analogy. Well, um, you think about it, it's a filter no matter what you're talking about, right? Because that's what we're doing. We're creating this efficiency, what we consider an efficiency, but at what cost? Mm-hmm. And it's like human connection is a major need, human basic need, never mind value. Interesting. Thank you so much for joining. And um, we look forward to seeing your books in the near future. Thank you. You can reach Martin through his Twitter handle at MARCharlier. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn so you never miss an episode.